Hitherto, we have discussed the nature of Torah in general. What's it comprised of? How was it developed? Written Torah, oral Torah, the various components of oral Torah, the rabbinic law and the justification for that. Of course, the veracity of Torah. Today, I want to pivot to a different angle of this discussion, and I want to discuss and document our nation's obsession with Torah study in particular. For us, Torah is not just a system of laws. It's not just an ancient heritage. It is the essence of our nation. It's what we stand for. It is who we are. It is what we do. There's a famous line from Rabbi Sa'ad Yagon, one of the great Ra'onu, the great leaders of the Jewish people in the 900s. Ein umatenu uma elebetorasa. Our nation is only a nation in its Torah. Torah study has always been the pastime of the Jewish people. Torah study has always been the culture of the Jewish people. Torah study has been the aspirations of our nation. Today, good Jewish mothers want their children to become physicians. My son, he's a doctor. That's what they always used to say. But historically, mothers hoped that their children become Torah scholars. Historically, who were the great leaders of the people? They were the greatest Torah scholars. So what I want to do today is document the history of the national obsession that is Torah study, the national love affair, if you will, that we've had with Torah. And that's going to open up the next discussion, and that's the question of why. Why is Torah study so essential to our religion? Why are we so obsessed with Torah study, what is in it for us? But we're going to begin with the subject of documenting our national obsession, our historical national obsession with Torah study. Our people have always been the people of the book. We have always been interested in knowledge, in philosophy, in learning. We've always had nearly 100% literacy rates. And this was true even in antiquity, even in the times of our forefathers, and even before Sinai. The Talmud of the Book of Yoma, page 28b says, Mimehem Shalavosain, from the times of our forefathers, there never ceased to be yeshiva. The term yeshiva is not a new term. It means to sit, but it means to immerse oneself in knowledge and learning. Continues the Talmud. When they were in Egypt, they had a yeshiva. When they were in the wilderness, they had a yeshiva. Abraham was an old man and still had a yeshiva, and still studying yeshiva. Isaac was an old man, and he too sat in yeshiva. Jacob was an old man, and he too sat in yeshiva. Eliezer, Abraham's attendant, was his primary student. He was the one who was his assistant, his teacher's assistant, to teach the Torah of Abraham to the masses. Continues the Talmud. Abraham kept the entire Torah. Even before Sinai, Abraham was studying Torah. Moreover, even rabbinic law that was revealed or invented or codified many centuries hence, Abraham had access to it. Abram had a portal of prophecy towards that, and he obeyed that. This is an astonishing statement. 
hundreds of years before Sinai, hundreds of years before the theophany that we've had that began the national mandate to obey the Torah, Abraham already studied Torah, Abraham observed Torah, he perpetuated that to his children, and he maintained an academy, a yeshiva of Torah study. And the Talmud tells us that it never stopped. This is the one constant of the Jewish people. There's a Midrash that tells us that at all times of our history, there were always a minimum of two academies. We know for about a thousand years, the great academies of, of Sura and Neherda and Pompadisa, they dominated Babylonian Jewry. But even in modern times, there's never been an instance where the nation did not have academies of learning, did not have yeshivos. Now, Jacob, if you look at his story, he grows up, of course, adjacent to his twin brother, Esau. And then he usurps the blessing, it's told in Parshas Toldos. And then he has to flee because he discovers that his brother wants to assassinate him. If you look at the final Rashi comment in Parshas Toldos, he makes a very lengthy calculation. And then he says, hey, there are 14 years missing from Jacob's storyline. Somehow, the years from 63 to 77 are missing. What happened to Jacob over the course of those 14 years? So Rashi quotes from our sages, and he tells us that Jacob, even though he's escaping, he's absconding from his brother who wants to kill him, he's heading east to Haran to go marry one of Lavan's, turns out to be two of Lavan's daughters. He makes a detour. And he goes to the academy of Aver, of, of shame and Aver. And he spends 14 years in the academy. And if you fast forward two verses, this is the second verse of Parshas Vayetze. This is when Jacob has his very dramatic dream where he sees the ladder suspended up into heaven, and the angels walking down and angels, angels coming up and God gives him a promise, and then he wakes up, and he's all terrified, and he makes an altar. That is the beginning of Parshish Vayetze. So it says, in the second verse, that Jacob encountered the place. Jacob arrived at the place which we know from our sages is actually Mount Moriah, which is also known as Temple Mount, the same place where Isaac was offered as a sacrifice. Jacob arrives there to go pray, but then nightfall comes upon him. And he takes a bunch of stones and places them around his head and goes to sleep. Vayishkav bamakomahu. He goes to sleep. He lays down in that place. So Rashi picks up on the superfluous verse or the superfluous words. Vayishkav, he went to sleep. Bamakomahu in that place. Says Rashi. He went to sleep. He laid down in that place. And that's coming to exclude that the 14 years that Jacob spent in scholarship in the academy, immediately preceding the story, he never lay down to sleep. This is an amazing Rashi. This tells us that the nature of Jacob's scholarship, and as outlined in the Talmud and the Midrash, was that when he spent 14 years studying, 
It wasn't kind of like, take it easy, go to the coffee room, take a cigarette break every five minutes. Jacob's study was such intensity that he never, over the course of 14 years, he never laid down on a bed, implying that he would doze off, he would take little cat naps, but he was committed to study with such intensity that only once he left did he permit himself to lay down to go to sleep in a more formalized manner. He went to sleep there to imply that elsewhere he didn't. This is an amazing statement in Rashi. Again, this is all pre-Sinai. The obsession with Torah study is baked into the essence of our nation. Our forefathers never departed the yeshiva. And Jacob, the man who will soon be called Israel, the father of the 12 tribes, what does he do in preparation for his encounter with Laban, in preparation for his wedding of his four wives, in preparation for his founding, if you will, of the nation? He spends 14 years in intensive study. Fast forward to Egypt. When Jacob sends down to Egypt, there's another famous Rashi, tells us that he sent Judah ahead of him to go establish the academy before the nation descends, before the 70 souls go down to Egypt. We have to have the necessary infrastructure. And again, all pre-Sinai, there is already an academy there. And then the Jewish people, of course, endure 210 years of servitude, of enslavement, and then they leave. And they leave with miracles, wonders, and 10 plagues, and they're out. They're free. And they're hustling towards the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the land that's been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land flowing with milk and honey. That's where they're going. But what happens? They get sidetracked, if you will, and they get delayed, and they ultimately spend 40 years wandering from place to place in the wilderness, 42 different cities that they have to encamp and disembark and travel and move. And what's going on? It's not so far to get from Egypt to the adjacent country of Canaan. So there's an amazing Midrash that again reveals to us something very insightful. Midrash points out that when they left Egypt, the verse says that the Almighty takes them in a very circuitous route. Says the Midrash, why did God take the nation in a circuitous route? The closest distance between two points is a straight line. That's the goal. The goal is to go to the land of Israel, to go inherit the land, kick away the Canaanites establish our homeland, fulfill the dream. Why is the Almighty taking the nation in a non-direct route? Says the Midrash that the Almighty said as follows. If I take them in a direct route and they enter the land right away, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to settle down the land and everyone's going to be apportioned with a field and a vineyard, and they're going to start planting and plowing and tilling and tending to their property. And what are they not going to do? What are they going to neglect? They're going to neglect Torah study. So what am I going to do? Says the Midrash, as if God is speaking. 
I am going to take them in this long trip around the wilderness, go from various places in the deserts and camp here and disencamp and go elsewhere. And I'm going to give them the manna and treat them miraculously so they will have the time and the headspace to be able to immerse themselves in Torah study. The objective of 40 years in the wilderness, it's not a punishment, according to the Midrash. It's not that the Almighty says, oh, you don't deserve it. No, he could find a way to bring us into the land. It was only like a 10-day journey or so to get from Egypt to the land of Canaan. The reason why the Almighty elongated the trip was to facilitate for them 40 years of uninterrupted study. These 40 years, God teaches Moses, Moses teaches the Jewish people, and for 40 years, the entire nation is one massive, roving academy of Torah. That is going to be how our nation is going to start. And that is the real reason why we have 40 years in the wilderness. And this starts at the very beginning of the 40 years. Right after the splitting of the sea, three days later, they end up in a city called Mara. That's a city where all the water is bitter. And God shows Moshe a stick. He throws the stick into the water and the water sweeten. And the verse tells us, Exodus 15.25, Sham sam lo chog umishpat visham nisahu. There the Almighty gave us a law and a statute. And there we were tested. This is several weeks before Sinai, and the Almighty gives us laws and statutes in the city of Mara. Says Rashi, quoted from the Talmud, the Almighty gave us several sections of Torah, namely that of Shabbos and the red heifer and the monetary laws. So we should have something to occupy ourselves with. With the Exodus, the nation is born. And we're making a beeline for Sinai. And at Sinai, we're going to have the Theophany, the Revelation, the Ten Commandments, the most dramatic and significant event in all of human history. We're going to have prophecy, national prophecy, together with Moshe at Sinai. And we're going to begin to get the Torah in Moss. But once we are a nation, even before we arrive at Sinai, we have to have Torah. And therefore, we get a deposit. We get a down payment of some of the laws of Torah, not necessarily to observe them, but like Rashi says, to occupy ourselves with, because the Jewish people, once we exist as a nation, we have to have Torah to study, because that is the Jewish pastime. The second the nation exists, it must have Torah to occupy itself with. And for 40 years, the Jewish nation is an academy studying under Moshe. The reason why we have the manna, the reason why we get water from a rock that follows us, that hosts the well, the wellspring of Miriam, the reason why we had that, it's only because the Almighty wanted to enable us 
to study Torah without any things disrupting us. The verse tells us that we should teach Torah diligently to our children. And we should discuss it when we sit in our homes, when we walk on the road, when we lie down to go to sleep, when we arise. Torah study should dominate our day. That was manifested more than any other time in history during the 40 years in the wilderness. Moshe, of course, was at the top of that, and he would teach everyone. In the past, we've talked about the process of how he would teach it four times, and Aaron would teach it also four times, and the whole nation, everyone would hear it a minimum of four times, and at least once from Moshe, but Moshe had a team of scholars and sages, every thousand had a leader, and every hundred had a leader, every fifty, every ten. The nation was broken down into various different nested groups where everyone could have people to study with on an ongoing basis. And we had manna, and the manna was there to ensure that all our needs are met so we could focus on what's important, namely that of Torah study. And the day Moshe died, the manna stopped. The nation is going to be transformed from a universal full-time Torah study nation into a universal part-time study nation. There's going to be a selection of sages and families and tribes that are going to be dedicated to full-time study. But the fact that the nation as a whole is no longer a roving yeshiva, we no longer have the benefits of that, the stipend of the magical manna. Yes, even in the times of Joshua, Torah study continued day and night, but it wasn't quite the same as it was in the times of Moshe, and therefore we lost the manna. But throughout our history, there has been an understanding and a belief that if someone wants to dedicate themselves full-time to Torah study, essentially they want to restore life the way it was under Moses, the Almighty is going to give them their own portion of manna. Those who commit themselves to study Torah full-time, those who want to immerse themselves in Torah study the way it was under Moses, can restore and regain that special divine treatment, namely the manna, namely divine sustenance from above. And that attitude And that obsession and that pastime is established, if you will, both with our forefathers and great antecedents, and also during this 40 years, the founding 40 years of our nation, a generation that spent 40 years under the tutelage of Moses and his great uh, helpers, if you will, The nation and the generation that is labeled as the greatest generation, the Dordea, the generation of knowledge, that is how we got started. And that is the foundation and bedrock of our people. And that continued throughout the centuries and millennia. The Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 94b, tells us about the Assyrian conquest of the land of Israel and Judah. This is after the grand secession of the northern tribes of Israel, where they separate themselves, the ten tribes of Israel, separate themselves from the two southern tribes, 
And thus we had two concurrent kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Sanherev leading the Assyrian army, which was the world superpower at the time, they conquer and disperse the northern tribes of Israel. And then they begin to pursue the southern kingdom of Judah. And they encircle Jerusalem. And the kingdom of Judah is led at the time by a very righteous king. His name was Hiskiah, Hezekiah. And how does he respond to this threat of this invading massive army that just laid waste to the northern tribes of Israel? What does he do? Says the Talmud. He reasoned that the only way to unburden ourselves from the yoke of Sancheirev, from the yoke of the Assyrians, is that the synagogues and the study halls would be constantly illuminated because people will be studying Torah day and night. That is our only weapon, says Chistia, against the invading, marauding Assyrians. So what did he do, says the Talmud, very dramatic. He took a sword and he went to the entrance of the study hall. And he says, whoever does not engage in Torah study, I'm going to stab them with the sword. That's one way to generate compliance, don't you say? And they made a census. And they went through throughout all of Judah. And they went from Dan to Beersheba. And they couldn't find a single ignoramus. There wasn't one person who was ignorant in matters of Torah. And they went to other places, other regions in the land, and they could find not a single male, not a single female, not an adult, and not a child who wasn't an expert in the very intricate and complex laws of ritual purity and impurity. And the story has a happy ending because a plague came and destroyed the army of Sancheirib, who went back to Assyria without his mission fulfilled, and the kingdom of Judah lived another day. But what do we see from here? We see that historically, the attitude has been in our nation that Torah protects us from our enemies, from fearsome invaders. And this idea is actually canonized in the Talmud, Torah magna umatzla. Torah protects, Torah shields us from danger, and it saves us from danger. And by the way, this lies at the heart of the highly contentious and highly controversial debate that has been going on in Israel for decades regarding the deferment of army services for yeshiva students. It's a very hot-button issue. But one of the arguments is, hey, look, historically, our national attitude has been that Torah study protects the nation. This is not a new argument that was invented in modern times. It's been present in our nation for thousands of years. And the argument continues, well, how did Israel manage to pull off stunning, almost miraculous military victories against better-equipped, much larger armies? One of the arguments of the proponents of continuing the exemption and deferral for yeshiva students, the so-called status quo agreement, is that the yeshiva students immersed in Torah study 
just as in the times of Hizkia, they contributed to the successes, to the military successes on the battlefield, as much as the soldiers in the trenches. Now, this is a very contentious issue. It's a very controversial issue. And, you know, if you were to tell someone, hey, you know, your kids have to go to war to die, but our kids are going to be in the shiva drinking coffee and being safe, it's a very hard argument to make to someone. But it is nevertheless a major subject of disagreement amongst various factions in the land of Israel. And one of the arguments is this point precisely. And I remember when I was in Israel in Yeshiva in 2006, there was the second Lebanon war. And they were sending Katyusha rockets. And uh, a million citizens from northern Israel had to evacuate. And they actually entered Lebanon. It was a very... I would say, for, for Israel terms, it was a long war and uh, one where the Israelis sustained a lot of damage. But that was in the summer of 2006. And there is um, kind of the, the calendar, if you will, of the semesters of the yeshiva. And we were approaching the end of the summer semester. So normally yeshiva's over. You have a three-week break before the new semester begins in the month of Elul. And I remember the Rosh Hashiva gave a speech. He says, listen, we are on the front lines because we are studying Torah. So until the war ends, we ain't leaving. Buckle up, settle down. We're going to stay here because we are on the front lines because we're studying Torah. But this idea, again, has been present throughout our nation for many millennia. And the phenomenon of Obsession with Torah study really spans all generations of Jewish history. It doesn't matter what era of Jewish history we're studying. It could be in antiquity. It could be in medieval times, even modern times. Jews are always obsessed with knowledge and literacy and learning and education. And of course, paramount among all of that is Torah study. Who were the heroes of our people? What are the great stories that we tell about the great sages? We talk, of course, about Hillel. Hillel was very poor. He was a woodchopper. And the Talmud tells a great story where every day he would chop wood and he would take the meager pittance that he would earn and half of it would be used to support his family and the other half was the nominal token charge that they charged to get into the study hall. And then one day it was bad weather and he wasn't able to make any money, but he wanted to study Torah nonetheless. So he said, you know what? I'm going to go to the academy. Maybe I'll be able to see my way in. Maybe I'll be able to sweet talk the guard and get in without paying. So he goes to the academy and he tries to get in. And the guard is not paid to think, just like they're not paid to think today. And he says, I'm sorry. I was told you got to pay to get in. It's a nominal fee, but you got to pay. Hill says, well, I don't have the money. He says, doesn't matter. You don't pay, you can't get in. So Hillel, what does he do? He climbs up on the roof, and there was a sunlight. And he's listening into the academy from outside. And the way it describes it, 
the lecture began on Friday afternoon, and it continued the whole night into Shabbos morning. This was not uh, 40 minutes and you're out of here. This was intensity. And Hill is listening with his ear pressed against the window, the skylight on top of uh, the ceiling, on the roof of the building, of the academy. And snow begins to fall. And before you know it, Hillel is unconscious, frozen as he's listening to the lecture. And then in the morning, the great sages who are giving the lecture, Shmai and Avtalio, they say, isn't it a little dark here? And they look up and they see the silhouette of a man sprawled out on the roof. And it's Shabbos. And Shabbos, you're not allowed to clear away snow. It's one of the prohibited behaviors in Shabbos. But of course, to save life, you can. So they go and they clear off the snow and they kindle a fire, even though that's prohibited, to save a life, to warm him up. And they resuscitate Hillel. And Hillel goes on to become the leader of the Jewish people in this, in the next generation. That story is told by the Talmud. That's a story that we tell our children to instill within them the idea, of course, of, of the great heroes of our history, but also the commitment that they had to Torah study. And we talk about Rabbi Akiva. And the Talmud in the book of Nadarim 50a talks about Rabbi Akiva. He started off his life as an ignoramus. At the age of 40, he has an epiphany. He sees the cylindrical hole in the rock and he realizes that consistency, the water dripping against the stone could penetrate a stone after many years and decades. Well, if, if that works, certainly Torah could penetrate my heart. And he says, you know what? I'm in. And he's married to the wealthiest Jew in the world at the time, his daughter. Because the daughter sees something special in Rabbi Kiva. And she says, listen, I'll marry you on condition you go study Torah. So they do that, and her father disowns her. How could you marry this ignorant shepherd? But she believes in him. And she sends him off to the academy. He says, go study in the academy. Well, how long is he going to study for? He'll come back for lunch, right? You go at 9 and come back at 12, right? No. You go to the academy and I'll see you in 12 years. That was the duration. So come back in 12 years. Full-time study for 12 years. I'll see you then. So she endures for 12 years and it's time for him to come home. So at that time, Robert Kiva had transformed himself from being an ignoramus to being one of the greatest scholars in the land. And it's time to come home. It's been 12 years. And he heads home. And as he's arriving to his house, someone was in his home speaking to his wife and telling her, why are you still married to him? Don't you know he's good for nothing? He's studying to her. Nothing will ever become of him. So his wife tells this naysayer, she tells him, well, if he was here, I would tell him to go back for another 12 years. So Rakiva hears that, and he turns around and heads back to the academy. And 24 years later, 24 years from the beginning, he is now the greatest sage in the land. He has 24,000 students, and now it's time to come home. And then they make a, a grand welcome ceremony for the greatest sage in the land, Rabbi Akiva. And he actually meets his father-in-law, who doesn't know that this Rabbi Akiva is the same Akiva little shepherd boy who is his son-in-law. And his father-in-law says, listen, Rabbi, I, I disown my daughter. 
I, I, I feel terrible about it. Could you find a way to undo the vow? So Rabbi Kiva says to him, well, if you knew that your son-in-law would study Torah, would you still have disowned your daughter? So he responded, well, if I knew that he would study even one Mishnah, even one law, I would have not disowned my daughter. So he says to them, okay, Shalom Aleichem, how you doing? I'm your son-in-law. And the rest is history. But the story of Rabbi Akiva, not stopping in, not spending the night, just turning around, making an about face, and going back to the yeshiva, that story is the story, or these are the stories, these are the heroes that we tell children about. The story of Rava. Rava is the name that appears most frequently in the entire Talmud. And he's not one of the Tanaim. He's not an author of the Mishnah. He's a, an Amora. He's one of the authors of the Talmud. And he's in Babylon. One of the heads of the Academy of Babylon. And the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 88a, going into 88b, tells us that he was once studying with such intensity that he didn't realize that there was something injuring him. And he didn't realize that he was bleeding because he was so focused on his study. And there was a heretic who was watching him and said to him, you're such a foolish nation. You're such an impetuous nation. You're the nation that said, we'll do it, we'll listen. You're crazy. How do you agree to the terms without even knowing what's in them? How do you agree to the Torah and say, we will do before you know what it contains? You're such a silly nation. To this heretic, Rava looks like an impulsive fool. He's the greatest example of someone who would accept the law without knowing the terms. Look at him. He's bleeding and he's still studying. He's crazy. But to us, Rava's a hero. He is the paradigmatic example of a Torah scholar. He's bleeding profusely, but he's totally unaware of it. He's oblivious to the fact and that displays the kind of tenacious commitment and immersion that our nation has had with Torah. They compare it to a soldier in the heat of battle. You read accounts of soldiers who were shot in combat, and sometimes they don't even know that they were shot. They feel like a little stained, but it's it's not. not, Obviously, they weren't shot. It wasn't a bullet. And until they fall unconscious with loss of blood, they don't even notice it because they're so focused on what they're doing. That's what Rava was like. Rava was so immersed in learning, he didn't realize he was bleeding because he was so solely, completely focused, so intensely focused on what he was doing, he didn't notice his injury. That is the intensity of the study of the heroes of our people. And there's actually modern examples of this phenomenon. The great Chacham Ovad Yosef, underwent surgery without anesthesia because he could get into a zone with Torah study that he wouldn't feel anything around them. People, he wouldn't notice them. Sounds, he wouldn't hear them. And pain, he wouldn't feel it. His mind was so completely enraptured by the Torah, nothing else would register. No pain could interfere. No sounds could interfere. Nothing. Every particle of him was connected to Torah. One final story to to display the national heroes of our people, the great Torah sages. The Talmud tells a story of one of the sages 
who lived very far away from the academy. It was a three-month journey to get from his home to the academy. So right after Pesach, he would leave. And he would travel three months to arrive at the academy to go study. But then it was already three months before Sukkot. So he could only spend one day before he would leave in order to get back home in time for Sukkot. So he would travel for three months and study one day and then travel back for three months and do the same thing. (laughs) After Sukkot, travel three months, one day study, and then travel back because they had to get back home in time for Pesach. And the Talmud says how the the other sages thought this was a little bizarre and they would laugh at it a little bit. And the great sage said to him, please don't punish the sages. I know that the Almighty loves your commitment to Torah study, even though it's only one day out of six months because the rest of the time you're traveling. I know that. And I know that if you study Torah for one day, it's the equivalent of studying Torah for the entire year. It was only one day that he studied Torah, the rest of the time he traveled. But because he was trying to study, and because he was traveling to study, or traveling home from studying, all that gets grandfathered in, and he was studying Torah completely. And that power of one day of study permeated the whole year. I like to think of this as like a pillbox, you know, the old people, the grandmothers, they have like a pillbox. Some of them have a weekly one, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And each one of them has got its combination of, you know, the various multivitamins and statins and all that. And every day they got to take their pills. And what happens if they forget? It's a problem. You need those pills. And it's kind of crazy if you think about it. You know, someone could be 100 pounds, 200 pounds, an adult. And there's a tiny pill that weighs a few ounces, a few grams, and that's what's keeping them alive. And if they miss it, it could be disastrous. Sometimes the thing that keeps us alive is very little relative to who we are, but that is the key to our life. This great sage is studying Torah one day a year. But that provides enough spiritual vitality as if you're studying Torah the entire year. No matter how little of it you have, it's what's given you life. That is the power of Torah study. And these are the stories we tell our children. And these are the heroes of our people. And our national obsession with Torah study is reinforced by our teachings. So we could spend the entire day talking about this, but I I chose, I curated a selection of teachings to convey the national obsession with Torah study. So in the morning, we say a prayer, which is actually sourced in a Mishnah in the book of Peah, chapter 1, Mishnah 1. And it's talking about various different mitzvos. Normally, we have the reward for mitzvos in the world to come. But we do gain some fringe benefits from the mitzvahs here. And it gives a list of those mitzvahs. Honoring parents, loving kindness, bringing peace between man and his fellow. The Talmud Torah connected kulam. And Torah study is equivalent to all of them. And our sages learn from this that the one mitzvah of studying Torah, it's only one out of 613 mitzvahs that we have. But this 
single mitzvah is equivalent to all the other mitzvahs combined. And our mandate is to study it, not just as a pastime, but also to know it and to develop familiarity with it. Says the Talmud Book of Kedushim, page 30a, going into 30b. Vishinan Tamlevanecha, you should teach Torah to your children, explains the Talmud. The words of Torah should be sharp in your mouth. If someone asks you a question, don't fumble, don't mumble, don't, as they say in Yiddish, fumfit. Rather respond immediately. There's a scary midrash that talks about the post-mortem exam that the Almighty gives every person. Did you study scripture? Yeah, okay, well, great. Did you study Mishnah? Oh, you did that too? Okay, great. Did you study Talmud? Midrash, Sifra, Sifri, Michilta, Torah's Koenim? The Midrash tells us that the question that we get asked is, how much Torah study did we do? Talmud says the first question that we get asked is, did you study Torah? Did you dedicate time to Torah study? Torah study in our nation is not just a thing that we do when it's convenient. It is our life. It's what we do. All of us need to work, but we don't live to work. We work to live. Well, what do we live for? If you don't live for work, what do you live for? Historically, our answer has been we live to study Torah, to study the Almighty's Torah. Kiheim chayenu ve'orech yameinu, we say every night. For it is our life and the length of our days. We work to live and we live to study the Almighty's Torah and to immerse in its wisdom. That's what we're here for. That's the first question we get asked after we hand in the keys, after we pass. Well, how much should we study? We all have to make a living, right? So the Rambam is famous for saying that we cannot study Torah as a livelihood. Don't make the Torah a shovel to dig with, not a crown to be glorified with. You have to make a living. That's what the Rambam says. He's always one to favor work and personal responsibility. You cannot say, hey, I'll study Torah and let everyone else pay my bills. Well, okay, so if you have to work, how many hours should you work? And what do you do with the rest of your time? Says the Ram, I'll tell you what you should do. You should work for three hours a day and study Torah for nine hours a day. And then you have 12 hours a day for everything else, to sleep, to, 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 to pray, to, to eat, everything else you need fit in 12 hours. And then the 12 hours of productivity, three hours of working and nine hours of Torah study. And this is for the lay people. This is for the average Joe. This is just for us, simple people. Nine hours a day, that's what the Ramah expects of us. That sounds pretty intense. Today, you know, you would hope the students in yeshiva studying Torah full-time would study nine hours a day. But that's the prescription the Rambam Imanis gives us for a working, the working class people. Not the rabbis, the scholars, the sages, just us. That shows us the degree of commitment incumbent upon us. And this is not just for the adults, it's for the children as well. 
Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 119b says, every city that does not have Torah education for children, there's two opinions. According to one opinion, we have to destroy the city. According to second opinion, we have to excommunicate the city. We have to disenfranchise the city. Continues the Talmud. Lo Harva Yerushalayim. Jerusalem was not destroyed only because they stopped teaching Torah to their children. This is the foundation of our nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spent time in Yeshiva. Our nation as a whole was immersed in 40 years of Torah study under Moshe. And that applies to us as individuals. The foundation of our life, children, they have to be reared on Torah study. And if you have a city that does not have sufficient infrastructure for teaching Torah to children, that city has lost its reason to live. And thus, either you destroy it, you burn it down, you excommunicate it, that is intolerable. And finally, Talmud of the Book of Medial, page 16b says, quite simply, Gedola Talmud Torah, Torah study is greater, Yoser Mehatzalas Nefashos, that is greater than saving lives. Now, this does not mean that if you have someone dying on the floor, you shouldn't stop your Torah study to save them. What it means is the reward, the transformation, the metamorphosis that happens to a person when they study Torah, that's greater than anything else, even saving a life. Now, of course, saving a life would take precedence over over Torah study because if you don't say the person is going to die, and there's almost nothing that we don't do to save a life. But the transformation that happens to a person when they study Torah, it seeds even that of saving a life. And thus, at all times of our history, Torah study was paramount. Even amidst persecution, even amidst the torturous conditions of expulsion and inquisition and crusade, Jews would flee and the first thing they took with them were their writings, their books, and their manuscripts. The authors of the Tosfos, found on every outer margin of books, of standard books of Talmud, wrote extensively and voluminously and comprehensively. And they lived in Europe during the Crusades. And legend has it that they were once stranded in a cave hiding from the barbarous and murderous crusaders and they were writing their commentary in the Talmud. And they ran out of ink. So did they stop studying? Did they stop writing? Did they stop codifying their grand commentary on Talmud? The legend has it that they drew their own blood and continued writing their commentary with their blood as ink. That obsession permeates every generation of our people. No matter what, regardless of the conditions, Torah forges ahead. And this is not just statements in the Talmud or stories in antiquity. Even today, today there is a robust, flourishing, vast network of schools and institutions and yeshivos that focus primarily on Torah study. 
I have this theory that there are more people studying Torah than any other area of scholarship in the world. You know, in America, there's only 5,000 or so law professors. But how many people are, are studying biology or chemistry or mathematics on a kind of a, a graduate, uh, a graduate school level, PhD level for the scholarship researching? It's very small. And compare that to how many scholars are studying Torah and Talmud. I have this theory that there's more human capital, more human intelligence, more human brilliance and genius invested in Torah than in anything else. And as someone who spent a not insignificant amount of time in these institutions, I can assure you that these people are not dunces who are doodling all day or wasting time. In my life, the sharpest minds that I've encountered, the most creative and and potent and sharp and agile thinkers that I've encountered were ones in the yeshiva. How many people today are studying physics and biology and, and chemistry in the in the world? I don't know. It's an interesting question to ponder. Most of them are studying it just to get their degree and move on. I think it's astonishing that even today, some of the most brilliant people in the world wake up in the morning and what do they do? What's their occupation? It's Torah study. When... Israel was being founded, there was a grand compromise that was reached between David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, and the rabbis. And what they uh, what they agreed upon was the concept of Torah-to umanato. Torah is his occupation. There's going to be mandatory conscription of men and women into either the army or the national service. But if Torah study is your occupation, you have a deferral, you have an exemption, at the time, in the early years of the state, there were 400 people, scholars, who qualified. And the general consensus was, this is coming to an end. This is going to peter out. And eventually, this won't be a very oft-exercised component of the law. But today, there are hundreds of thousands of people in Israel who qualify. And again, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing is not our subject. It's just a statement of fact that this actually exists. And it's a very controversial thing in the highly charged political atmosphere in Israel. These Torah sages and scholars are often, unfortunately, labeled as parasites. They leech off the government. They don't work and they don't produce and they don't... They don't go to the army. They don't serve. They just sit and study Torah and drink coffee. And, of course, that's very unfortunate when people talk about fellow citizens and fellow Jews in that way. But it does, I would say, reflect a continuation of an attitude that has been present and privy in our nation, that has been been true to our people, since before nation was even founded, the times of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and in Egypt even and in the 40 years of the wilderness and every point in our history, we've seen the same obsession. This is the most integral component of or the most consistent aspect of our nation's history. 
an obsession with Torah study. And the fact that it continues today is not something to be surprised with. It's just continuing what has always been. So I think we've established the centrality of Torah study in our history and our people. If we had any doubt about the supremacy and the importance of Torah study, it's now quelled. Torah study has always reigned supreme and paramount in our people's history and in our philosophy and in our culture. It's been the national obsession and past of the Jewish people. And the question that I want to explore next is why? Why is it so important to study Torah? What is the transformation that we always talk about that happens with Torah study? Why are we so obsessed with it? Why ought we study ourselves? What's in it for us? What do we gain when we spend so much time studying Talmud? And by the way, you'll be surprised to hear this. The vast majority of what is studied in the yeshiva is not relevant at all to your life. We spent a year studying Leverite marriages. Do you know anyone that ever had a Leverite marriages? Or anyone who did a chalitza? Most people have never encountered this even once in their life. So you spent a whole year of your life studying something that never happens. Sanhedrin, Talmud, Book of Sanhedrin. Almost nothing that's described in the Book of Sanhedrin happens on a regular day-to-day basis. Now, of course, there are some parts of the Talmud that deal with the laws of Shabbos. Every week we have to observe the laws of Shabbos and it's very relevant. But we spent a year studying Baba Kama. If my ox kills your ox, what happens then? What if it tramples on the fruits of your field and it eats them? What now? It steps on some gravel, which shoots the gravel into your field and breaks your stuff. Again, stuff that are not, or situations that are not relevant at all. Spending months and months on these stuff? Why? In the past, I've compiled a list of 20 plus different answers to this question. 20 plus different reasons as to why we study Torah. And I don't know if we'll go through all of them. But please, God, we're going to continue this subject. It's been well documented that our nation has been obsessed with Torah study throughout the generations, throughout the millennia and centuries. And the question we're going to ponder and pursue next is why? And please, God, in our next session, we're going to talk about this. Why are the Jewish people so obsessed with Torah study and what is in it for us? I thank you all for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. It is such a pleasure to talk to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you have a fine week. I hope you are blessed with all manners of goodness.